Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are speaking to Craig Ryder, a PhD researcher at SOAS University of London, on truth, information and synthetic realities in Sri Lanka. Craig is a digital anthropologist concerned with disinformation, social media, and the nascent technology of synthetic media. Building on his journalism experience in Sri Lanka, Craig's PhD research looks to not only understand the impact of fake news on democracy, but how communities are mitigating its effects. Hi, Craig. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So, really interesting research, especially in light of the fact that narrative about fake news and disinformation online is usually more in a Western lens. So it's quite interesting to find out what exactly is defining the post-truth era in global South countries such as Sri Lanka. It's a great question. And I think we need to look at what is post-truth. And post-truth as a term came about in 2016, and it seemed to sum up, in the West at least, the Brexit referendum and the rise of Trump. At the same time, there was the rise of populist leaders all around the world, especially in emerging nations. We saw that in the Philippines. In Sri Lanka, it was the return to power of Mahinda Rajapaska. But the post-truth era is problematic as a term because it implies that there's a truth era, which of course is an epistemological cul-de-sac in itself. Everyone knows that before 2016, there wasn't suddenly truth. The 20th century wasn't full of truth. So now we need to look at the reasons that this change has occurred in 2016. And it is based around social media. It's a reaction to the many voices that are now into the mix and the many voices that are prone, I argue, to revenue-hungry algorithms on YouTube, Facebook, etc. So I don't think we live in a post-truth era. I argue that we live in a multi-truth era, which I think is summed up by what we just saw in the US election. To turn to Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka has always had a difficult relationship with the truth. During the war, which lasted from 1983 to 2009, that's 26 years, Sri Lanka had a reputation of censorship and in a really draconian way, many journalists were murdered, went missing. Famously, the editor of the Sunday Leader newspaper disappeared outside his apartment in Colombo in 2009. So Sri Lanka's post-truth today is undiscovered, I would say, and that's why it is very interesting for me to dive into it. Are there some examples of situations that have arisen as a result of fake news or fake information there? Yeah, lots. So in 2018, two years into the post-truth era, if you will, there were some anti-Muslim riots in the city of Kandy and the villages around Ampara. And the trigger to violence was an elaborate fake news plot that involved a coerced video of a Muslim restaurant owner confessing to poisoning the food in the restaurant. The man was forcibly made to cry and confess. This was released on WhatsApp and circulated widely. It did what it intended. A mob started rioting through Muslim villages. And it's such an evocative example of what fake news can do. And at the time, I was working as a journalist there. It was February 2008. And the government's reaction to the violence was to completely censor all social media platforms. So they, they switched off Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram. It was a really irrational reaction to something. People's businesses, their lives are built through social media. You pull the plug. It causes bigger fractions. It was a very, very intriguing time. 
what are some of the bigger threats social threats or social effects that might occur as a result of deep fakes and fake information so firstly it's interesting because there isn't any actual example of a deep fake in sri lanka at the moment which might sound mad because that's my research focus but i'm predicting that it's going to arrive and i feel like it's going to arrive everywhere sri lanka has a particularly interesting case example because its relationship with disinformation in the last few years has been so rife so maybe the impact of deep fake will be even greater than other places. For example, all countries during the pandemic have experienced new forms of fake news. When lockdown arrived in Sri Lanka in 2020, and by the way, Sri Lanka has had an amazing response. But in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, when lockdown restrictions occurred, a video was posted on social media and it took a video of a mosque congregation in 2019 and recirculated it as March 2020 and the message was Muslims are disobeying lockdown restrictions and the share that I saw was on Facebook it received 9000 views and it demanded the congregation be shot on site for endangering the nation that's a form of fake news we're not that familiar with someone recirculating old information today and it's very interesting so that's, that's almost like a cheap fake you could mm. call it so i wonder what's going to happen when people do get access to these algorithms that can artificially create synthetic media and that i don't think is too far away there are apps on app store that we can all download that allow us to produce some form of synthetic media let's take a short break you are listening to the global digital futures podcast where we discuss the latest in digital media and technology in the global south. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You said two two things stuck out to me. How would you elucidate for the listeners on what actually a deep fake is? A deep fake is a gant it's a generative adversary network it uses pictures say on social media and it can reformulate new media from that old media so it could take for example 100 pictures of myself from my facebook page and then create me in a new way doing something new repurpose my head on another person's body so i could be in a different situation in a different city at a different time or have one saying something that i that someone didn't say the implication of this is massive because in a court of law video and audio footage has always been evidence and fact if however we can start putting people in the crime scene at the time via a deep fake technology then they are ostensibly guilty so we haven't quite seen the ramifications of this technology because it is so nascent what it potentially can do is what's so worrying I am also quite interested in the research methodology that you plan to use to be able to reach meaningful conclusions about information, manipulated information and the effects of that in Sri Lanka. So my methodology is I've pitched it as a three-tiered approach. I come from an anthropological background, so I'm keen to use a traditional method of participant observation and that is going into the local field and observing people interviewing people spending a lot of time with people and understanding the cultural practice in my case that would be with journalists and at the moment because of travel restrictions my methodology wouldn't be allowed so i do have to make plans to have 
other methodologies that I can conduct remotely. And that turns me on to digital ethnography, which is a really exciting field mm. and still always snowballing and changing as the technologies do. Something I would be interested in doing is looking at social media conversations around fake news and deep fakes. And I could do that manually by screenshotting conversations, etc. But of course, I wouldn't probably get to grips with the size and scale of digital conversations. So I would be interested in looking at something like a natural language processor, an NLP algorithm that can collect the large data sets. And then if I could perhaps look at 10,000 tweets in a day, the algorithm would be able to pick out particular sentiments around the conversations. And we could look at an analysis that way of having a big macro large scale understanding and then perhaps dig in to some of the really interesting bits. My methodology then is undecided. We are living in this pandemic world where there's lots of uncertainty. Going back to the effects of deepfakes, I want to talk about, on a personal level, who are the people most vulnerable to deepfake attacks and why? Yeah, really interesting. I actually want to first start with a bit of a story. In October 2018, the president of Gabon is Ali Bongo, and he had a stroke and he was out of presidential action for about two months. And there was no content or videos, anything like that. He was recovering, apparently he was recovering in Saudi Arabia and London where he was receiving treatment. But the government didn't announce that he had a stroke and they announced it in December. Then when he came back to do his New Year's address, he was looking slightly unwell. I think they said his speech was slightly slurred. And his critics then said, this is a deep fake of him and he is dead. He wasn't dead. It was the real video. But because deep fakes exist, even if they're not actually present in Gabon, there was a military coup. The coup tried to overthrow the incumbent president and it was all a lie. So, yeah, it's really confusing. So there is that classic thing to answer your question of presidents and political figures. But of course, the few cases around the world have also been against women in particular. 96% of deepfakes on the internet are non-consensual pornography. Someone putting the head of someone onto the body of a, of a porn actress. And this has happened in India with a really prominent journalist called Rana Arup. She's very critical of the government and she's been victim of this. Ada Al-Casey, who, who I believe came on this podcast recently as well, her research indicated in Iraq there was female journalists suffering the same kind of deepfake attacks. So that's really worrying, of course, but it seems obviously the presidential victims will grab the headlines more than female journalists, unfortunately. So is there a way that people can protect themselves from having their likeness manipulated, but also after the fact? What happens? I'm not sure about that. I think every country will have independent inflammatory laws mm. around what can and cannot be said, mm. freedom of speech, etc. Mm. In terms of protecting oneself, I mean, it is a minefield. Our, mm. our images are online. It's really quite difficult to delete things from the internet. So digital literacy is an important element of this conversation. I'm not certain that that is the, the panacea. The impact of deep fake can be mitigated later on, but the impact, it happens in seconds. Mm. If you see a video, you, you can't unsee it. And it might have a small cognitive change in your bias onto that person. Because deepfakes will be in the information ecosystem, people will generally just become more distrustful of all information. I did want to get into how people view deepfakes then. You mentioned digital literacy, but can we not trust 
human discernment in identifying real from fakes and apart from digital literacy are there any tech solutions maybe if people are making the technology to make this stuff is there other technology that can flag it as well absolutely i think to talk about deep fakes it is a similar conversation to the broader fake news question and what we found with research on fake news is that it isn't just about truth and falseness a really famous study by an amazing researcher called Alice Marwick in 2008. Her paper is called Why Do People Share Fake News? And she's talking to mothers in America who are really anti-Hillary Clinton. This is in around 2016. She's asked, this piece of content that you shared about Hillary being a reptile or being a part of the cabal is clearly fake or it's clearly from a disreputable source. What do you think that people think when you share it? Do they think you believe it? And the mum turns around and says, I don't care that it's not true. I just care that people know that I hate Hillary Clinton. So it's not even an essay about the information. Marwick says is that sharing fake news is about identity signaling. You're telling people that in this case you hate Hillary Clinton. If someone in the UK or, or elsewhere shares a conspiracy theory, which are really rife at the moment, you're not necessarily saying, I believe that 5G causes coronavirus. You might just be saying, I'm the sort of person who is open-minded enough to question the government or question the status quo. Do you know of any tech solutions that you've heard of to deepfake technology? Blockchain is being earmarked as a potential panacea for deepfakes, but there is a lot of hype and bluster around blockchain, which is easy to get caught up in. But blockchain could authenticate all photos in the media sphere and therefore we could spot when a video is using an image out of context for example but the deepfake doesn't take long to do its magic if you will to have an impact even if it's proved to be fake an hour after its release in an hour it could be shared a hundred thousand times there is an important role here for the platforms and the institutions who govern our internet and how we experience news. And Facebook is always tweaking its rule book, for example. Between July and December 2019, in Sri Lanka, Facebook removed 847 pieces of content, which I thought was fairly impressive. 800 or nearly 900 pieces of content in six months. But then you have to question how good are their language algorithms and how good are they at identifying what they concern to be hate speech. Matty Hongan, who used to be at SOAS, his research in Ethiopia saw that when Facebook and social media platforms remove content, they might be doing a disservice to the debate. Some IRA online might have a cathartic process for some populations. Not all speech is, although it might be deemed as being horrible or extreme, it might not incur real world problems. It's a deep debate, that one. One I don't really want to go into. Well, I think also the other side of it could be how invested the platforms are in removing fake information in countries where they don't really understand the local context that much or are not heavily invested there. Let's take a short break. Learn more about this topic today by accessing the reading and other resources in the show notes on www.globaldigitalfutures.com. Okay, let's keep the conversation going. You are listening to the Global Digital Futures podcast with Chipo Mapondera. 
You mentioned how platforms are responding to deepfakes. I also wanted to find out how civil society and other organisations are responding to mitigate the negative effects of fake news as well. Raw Media, that's who I used to work at, and they're a really brilliant news agency. They hosted a webinar recently called Engage to Disengage, and it's in collaboration with the United Nations and education programmes. They operate across all the linguistic fields in the country, which is really, really important. But civil society organisations are, for instance, like the Goethe Institute, which pops up in, in, in most capital cities in, in emerging nations. It's been difficult in the pandemic. All focus has obviously been on that, mm. even though the pandemic is probably exacerbated by disinformation. Mm. Disinformation in medical pandemics having word in themselves, which is an infodemic. Mm. Arguably, that hasn't happened in Sri Lanka, but there has been cases since March of citizens being arrested for spreading disinformation during the pandemic. Mm. And whereas before we were speaking, the Sri Lankan government seemed to have a reaction to fake news by closing down the platform. Mm -hmm. It seems like the platforms have probably told them, stop doing that. It's really bad for business. And so the Sri Lankan government have had a slightly irrational approach by arresting citizens. It's not just an online problem. Mm. It's not just platforms having to censor or watch information. Now the police, are involved it comes down to more local real world ngo action and that's an area of my research i haven't even looked into yet there's a lot of things to be aware of some worries some concerns are there any positive expectations is there a positive side to deep fake technology because it is amazing are there some positive things to look out for in terms of deep fakes It's a great question. I think we have to define positive. I think there'll be many people and industries that will make a lot of money from synthetic media, not necessarily deep fake, because what it could do, it could effectively automate the creative industries. If deep fakes, or we should say synthetic media, when they're not in a disinformation ecosystem, is you could conceivably film a movie without having any people in it, without getting a camera out. I mean, that is pretty sad in my mind. But I saw a startup in London. They believe that 70% of filmmaking will be synthetic in 10 years. This is a legitimate way to continue your favourite soap opera if there was social distancing, etc. Well, Craig, those are all my questions. Do you have any final insights that you'd like to share? Yeah, I just think the Gabon example is so interesting. And it has a similar thing with the case of a cabinet minister in Malaysia. A video was released of him in a intimate position with another man. Homosexuality is illegal in Malaysia. So he was in trouble. His prime minister came out and said it's a fake and said it's been cooked up by those with political agendas. And the piece of news dissipated and the cabinet minister luckily kept his job and and wasn't socially shamed. But there is no evidence that it was a deep fake. So similar to the Gabon example, the very idea that deep fakes exist in the wider world means that people can question any video. And that is the bigger existential crisis than an actual deep fake video. That kind of spells the end of reality. And that is the biggest worry, I think. On that note, there is definitely a lot to think about here. This is such a brief conversation, but it goes so deep.
Thank you for listening to this episode with Craig Ryder. Find out more about Craig's research on his website, therealfakenews.hcommons.org. Find Craig and follow him on Twitter at Ryder House Rules. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe and follow. Also, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It will really help with our ranking. And if you enjoyed the episode, please share the podcast with your friends. You can find us online at www.globaldigitalfutures.com and on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at global underscore futures. Music